Revelation 7 verse 1 says, After this I saw four angels, Revelation 7, 1, standing at the four corners of the earth. I think the four corners there are best taken as the compass points. You can think of, you know, east, west, north, and south. Uh, you can think of a worldwide uh, situation here. Four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Notice they are holding back the four winds of the earth. Uh, the, the winds are really what gives us rain. And so they're holding back the four winds so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now, we have a key phrase here in chapter 7, verse 1. Right at the beginning of the verse, it says, after this. So whenever you're reading your Bible, that's something to highlight because you always have to ask questions when studying your Bible. And you should say, well, after what? After this is after what? Go back to Revelation 6. Look at verse 12. As we've been going through the seals, we've come to the sixth of seven seals. I looked, says John, 6, 12. When he, Jesus, broke the sixth seal, seal number six, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Now, the sixth seal is what I would call the cosmic sign. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The sign that the age is about to end is here at the sixth seal. The sign is some sort of cosmic uh, situation where the luminaries, the sun, moon, and stars, no longer shine their light, at least for a time. The natural lights go out. The natural way of thing ceases. It is interrupted by the hand of God. The sixth seal is broken. Jesus is sovereign over it. There's a great earthquake, which is a uh, kind of a, uh, something we see in divine visitation like at Sinai. The sun becomes black as sackcloth made of hair. We just had, you know, everybody was fascinated with the uh, eclipse that we just had, right? And special glasses and all of that. So we understand some of that. The whole moon became like blood. We've heard of the blood moons. Uh, a lot of people were speculating about the meaning of the blood moons. Uh, a couple of them are falling on actual feast days of Israel. What does that mean? Is there any meaning at all? How typical is this? And I warned you that just to be careful that you know we don't uh, become uh, fascinated with these things and lose our perspective. We can look at them. They can be interesting signs to take note of. They may mean that something's about to happen in Israel. There's been some pattern of some things like that, but we have to be very careful. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. I showed you other places where it says the stars no longer give their light. So we have the sixth seal and we have this sign. What is the sign of your coming? I believe that the sign of the second coming of Jesus Christ is this simple the natural lights are going to go out. The sign that will precede the second coming of Jesus Christ is a darkened sky. When it's supposed to be light, it will be dark. I do not believe, based upon the language that is in the Bible in multiple passages that we've shared in the past, at least some of us, that this will be a natural phenomenon. 
I believe that this will be supernatural. I believe God will do something supernaturally to make it unmistakable. Jesus said his second coming will be like a lightning strike from the east to the west. He said, to put it in modern vernacular, it will be as plain as the nose on your face. No one will miss the second coming of, of Jesus Christ. In fact, it says all the tribes of the earth, Revelation 1-7, will mourn when they see him coming. No one will wonder what happened. In fact, if you keep reading in chapter 6, verse 15, it says the kings of the earth, when they see this cosmic sign, and the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, every slave and free man, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They know exactly what's going on. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. We've been seeing uh, him in chapters 4 and 5, God the Father. And from the wrath of the Lamb, we've seen the Son, the Lamb, worshipped right in the presence of the Father. For the great day of their wrath, the Father and the Son, has come. And here's the question, who is able to stand? Malachi 3, verse 2 says, who can endure his coming? Revelation 6 is another way of quoting Malachi 3, verse 2, if you want to write it down in the margin. The question is asked, and it should be asked of all of us. If we were here to experience the cosmic sign of darkness and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the way, we've seen in Matthew 24, he's coming with all the angels, probably billions of angels. Who can endure his coming? Who will be able to stand on that day? Who will not cower in fear, run for a cave, cry for a rock to fall on them? I'll tell you who. The ones that will be able to stand on that day will be those who are standing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They will look up and their redemption draws near. Others will be hiding, but the people of God will be saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Yes and amen, his promises are true. In the book of Joel, hopefully you've held a place in the book of Joel, there's a couple of prophecies that match what we've seen in regard to this day of the Lord. And I, I rattled off a bunch of them last time from Isaiah 2 and other places. But here's Joel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. So hopefully you're there. If you're not there, just write these down. Joel 2.11. Joel 2.11 says, The Lord utters his voice. Joel 2.11 before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord, that's that phrase that we've been talking about, is indeed great and very awesome. And here's the question, and who can what? Who can endure it? Malachi 3.2, Joel 2.11, both ask the question, who can endure this day? Who will be able to stand? Skip down to Joel 2.28. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. We've been hearing about dreams and visions in the Islamic world uh, quite a bit and uh, verified by a lot of reputable sources that there are people, especially in the Islamic world, that are having dreams and visions about Jesus without even a Bible in many cases. They are dreaming about Jesus. He's appearing to them in dreams and saying things to them about salvation and the true God which is really interesting. It says in verse 30, I will uh, display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. 
The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. What's your Bible say? Before, mark it, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, what will, what will happen? Verse 31, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. Before, before the day of the Lord comes, this sign is given by Joel. And it will come about, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. That's our famous uh, verse that we quote all the time from the book of Romans. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Go down to Joel 3. Look at verse 13. Joel 3, 13 says, put in the sickle. We're going to see this imagery, harvest imagery later in Revelation. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And then notice the sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. So again and again, I could give you many others. We've looked at ones in Isaiah 13 and other places, but we see this sign in Matthew 24. Just to remind us, uh, flip over there to Matthew 24. We see Jesus talk about this very thing and he's been going through the seals as he preaches on the Mount of Olives. He's taken us through uh, the seals. We've compared Revelation 6 with Matthew 24. If you didn't hear that message, go back and get that. But Jesus then says these words, Matthew 24, 29. He says, 24, 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. So you find Jesus saying the same thing as Joel, the same thing as John. The sun will be darkened, Matthew 24, 29. The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Just a note about scripture, just really quick, for those of you who are you know, thinking about why is the Bible a unique book? Do you see that multiple authors are saying the same thing? They often live hundreds, even thousands of years apart. And they say the same thing about similar events. This is the idea of prophecy. And it's being verified from Old to New Testament. From It's called, scholars call it multiple attestation. When you have attestings of multiple individuals seeing something or saying the same thing, you can see it's being verified. There's a, there's a, a, a symmetry is the best way to say it. So Jesus says, you'll see these signs. You'll see the powers of the heavens. End of verse 29. They will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So the sky has been darkened. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and he will gather together his elect from the four winds. Now we've seen this description in Revelation 7, 1, the four corners, the, the winds being held back. The four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now in the book of Luke, in chapter 17, I referred to this last time, but go over there, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Jesus gives two illustrations about the nature of his coming and what it's going to look like. And he uses two illustrations from the Old Testament, Luke 17, and this is in verse 36, 26. Luke 17, 26. It says, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, first illustration is Noah, 
Luke 17, 26, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. That's another way of saying Jesus Messiah. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage. All things that we would say are normal things, right? People do eat, people do drink, people do get married. Uh, no further commentary on that. <laughs> I was going to try to say something funny, but never mind. They were being given in marriage. So all the normal things that we would expect to see, there's weddings every weekend, people eat and drink all the time. They were doing the normal stuff until what? Until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. Second illustration, first is Noah, second is Lot. The first is from Genesis 6 and following, the second from Genesis 19. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, stuff of everyday life, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, what happened? It rained fire and brimstone from heaven. And again, Jesus says, it destroyed them all and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. In what way will it be the same, you might say to Jesus, if you had a chance to sit with him and chat? Here's how it will be the same. Noah was sealed into the ark. Everybody was going about business as usual, ignoring the preacher of righteousness. 2 Peter 3, 5 says Noah was a preacher of what? Righteousness. Extra biblical accounts say he was putting the ark together and people were laughing at him. He was the joke on the front page of the newspaper in the opening monologue of, you know, nighttime shows. Oh, nutty Noah, there he goes again, building his ark. And God sealed him in the ark and the flood came and took them all away. Jesus says, second illustration will be like Lot. Lot was being what? Pulled out of Sodom and Gomorrah by two angels. Did you notice in Matthew 24, Jesus said he's gonna send forth his angels and they will gather together his what? Elect from the four corners. Did you notice? Two angels pull Lot out, very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, and they say, we can't destroy this place until you're out of here. And as he's being pulled out, what happens? Fire and brimstone, rain on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot's wife doesn't even make it. Apparently she looks back. She, we know she looks back, but apparently she gets caught up in the, the uh, destruction from God or the judgment of God. And Jesus says, it's going to be the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now just think with me. What day have we been talking about? The day of... The Lord. Who's the Lord? Jesus is Lord. When Jesus comes, that will be the day of the Lord. It'll be the day when the Lord Jesus is revealed in power and great glory. And Noah and Lot are two illustrations of how that day will be. There will be a lot of preaching like there is today, a lot of warning. There will be the seals that have been broken. There, there will be the 70th week of Daniel we've been talking about. And Jesus goes on. He says, on that day, 31 Luke 17, let not the one who's on the housetop, uh, who, is in the, who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down to take them away. Likewise, not let the one who is in the field turn back. What's he say? Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life shall preserve it. 
I tell you, on that night, there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken. The Greek word is para lambano. This is important. I'm going to spell it for you. Para, P-A-R-A. Lombano is L-A-M-B-A-N-O. Just write that down. Paralambano is the Greek word. One will be taken, paralambano. The other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, paralambano. The other will be left. This is, uh, we're not sure if this is original. That's why it's bracketed. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, paralambano. The other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also will, will the vultures be gathered. Jesus is saying once again, it, it's going to be an obvious thing, just like the plain as the nose on your face. One will be taken, the other left. Taken to what? Paralambano is only used, I think, about six times by Jesus in regard to old, excuse me, in, in regard to future events as uh, related to the second coming. Uh, Jesus uses it in John 14. He says, I go and prepare a place for you and I will receive you to myself, paralambano, receive you to myself that where I am there you may be what? Also. Paralambano is the idea of bringing someone close to you. It has the idea of intimate fellowship. One will be taken, one will be left. Now I know some people have tried to argue that one taken is taken in judgment and the other one left is, is left or preserved. I don't think that that's what it's saying here. I think it's very obvious in the flow of the context with the illustrations of Noah and Lot, the one taken is taken out before what comes. The judgment. Do you remember how I called this boom, boom eschatology? Didn't you all love that? Here's what I think is going on. It's righteous out, judgment on the wicked. Noah and Lot. Everybody got it? Those are the illustrations Jesus gave. The Greek word for taken is paralambano. It's not taken in judgment. It's taken to the Lord. It's taken to his uh, bosom, if you will. It's where I am there. You may be also. You will be taken or rescued before the judgment comes. The people of God have not been appointed to wrath. Aren't you glad? Before the wrath comes, God will take his people out from danger. Now, this is what Revelation 7 is all about. All of that was preamble. That means preliminary. <laughs> that is why I said, we'll see if we get through Revelation 7 tonight. But now here's what we all want to see. We know that we've come to what seal? Seal number six. I showed you how seal number seven, the famous seventh seal, is not broken until Revelation 8. So between Revelation 6 and Revelation 8, we have, for all you mathematicians, Revelation 7. So what would we expect if the order is chronological? And you'll, you can read a bunch of commentaries and then people say, it is chronological, it's not chronological. Well, the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1 said, after this, right? So I take that as chronological and, I, and I'm going to show you why. Before you can have the wrath of God come, We've been watching this principle that the people of God are not appointed to wrath. Now, I've made a distinction between persecution and wrath. 
I've made a distinction between tribulation and wrath. They're two different things. Tribulation, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Anybody have a tough day lately? Just raise up your hand. Anybody, anybody tribulate lately? Somebody call you up. How's your day? I'm tribulating. It's biblical. We all go through tribulation, right? We all have trouble. Another way to say tribulation is pressure or trouble. There's a distinction between tribulation and even great tribulation, which is the Greek word megas, big or you know, wide or larger tribulation, and wrath. I have made the case for you that the first five seals and then even the sign of the coming of the Son of Man, which is uh, the sixth seal, is not God's wrath. You've had war, famine, pestilence. You've had uh, the Antichrist, uh, war, famine, pestilence, death. The fifth seal was martyrs who will not recant their faith in Christ. We have not really seen the wrath of God come. In fact, the martyrs underneath the altar have been saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you, what? Avenge our blood on those on the earth. How long until you wait? How much longer until you judge? And they were told, wait a little while longer until the full number comes in. They were told to rest a little while longer. And so the judgment, in my view, has not come yet. But it's about to come. But something has to happen before it comes. And right now the angels are holding back the wind. It's kind of like restraint. Not yet. Hold on. Wait. The worldwide judgment is coming, but hold on. And I saw another angel, Revelation 7, verse 2, ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal, the Greek word is sphragis, of the living God. We as Christians are sealed with what? We're sealed with the Holy Spirit unto the day of Christ. By the way, I think the day of Christ, Ephesians 4, 29, is the day of the Lord. I think it's just another way of saying it. So how long are you sealed till? Until the day of Christ. You're secure. If you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, you're secure. You'll be sealed until the day when he shows up and all this stuff happens. And you're going to be grateful to have the seal. Amen? But here's what it says. And I think, of course, this is distinct from the seal of the Holy Spirit. But he had the seal of the living God and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Uh, they're about to execute God's judgment. He said, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until what? Until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Don't release the wrath until these individuals called bondservants, the Greek word is doulos or douloi. We have the Hebrew idea of an eved, that's the bondservant, the voluntary slave of God. Don't do it. Don't harm anything. Don't release the wrath until these bondservants are sealed on their forehead. That's verse 3. They've got to be sealed before uh, this occurs. Now, some of you have looked at the idea of a seal. And when you see a seal, it's the idea of two main ideas, ownership and protection. So in the ancient world, when someone sealed something, like the tomb of Jesus was sealed, remember? And they, they, that was, you can't break the seal. Jesus has been dealing with what? The scroll that has how many? Seven seals on it. So a seal speaks of ownership. It speaks of protection. It speaks of authority. 
And there's an interesting passage in Ezekiel I want to take you to that uh, has a similar happening. So go to the Psalms and Proverbs, pass them up, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Just before Daniel, chapter 9. Ezekiel, chapter 9. Ezekiel is a contemporary of Daniel and uh, other prophets. And here's the setting the um, prophecies are coming that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the hand of God because of wickedness and idolatry. There's even terrible wickedness going on in the temple. That's Ezekiel chapter 8. And so the way the judgment's going to come is through an army. And do you remember what army comes in the 500s BC? It's the Babylonian army. Just, just remember Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia. That's how it goes down in history. And so this is the Babylonian invasion. Before this can occur, Ezekiel 9.1 says these words. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice and he said, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, Ezekiel 9.2 Six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, mark that, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. Now, Jerusalem is about to be sacked by Nebuchadnezzar. This is a major happening, 586 B.C. But before it occurs, something happens here in Ezekiel 9. And these, these ones are told... We need to mark the people that are sighing and upset and devastated by the abominations happening here in the temple area. Remember when Jesus comes on the scene, what's the temple area look like? Is it, is it truly honoring God? Jesus said, you have made my father's house a house of merchandise. You've made it a den of thieves. This place is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, right? You've made it a, a robber's den. Similar happenings here at the time that Nebuchadnezzar comes in and these are to be marked on their foreheads. These who see the terrible things going on and do not approve. Everybody look at the word mark in verse four. That word mark is tav, T-A-V. Just write it down, T-A-V. So God is the alpha and what? Omega, in Hebrew, he is the Aleph Tav. The first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet are Aleph and Tav. Everybody remember what the Tav looks like, especially in the ancient Hebrew language? The Tav looks like what? A cross. Everyone who is going to be marked in the city with this mark is the Hebrew word Tav. And it looks like a cross. This is a long time before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. This is a long time before we as Christians, you know, 
celebrate a cross on which Jesus died. We preach the message of the cross. In fact, Jewish graves are marked with the Tav before we even knew about crucifixions. This was happening. Imagine this. The people in the city who are being marked for preservation before the judgment comes are being marked with crosses on their foreheads. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem. What? Do you remember in the Exodus, before God was going to pass over the 10th plague, they were, to they were told, we, uh, you are instructed to kill a lamb at twilight, and you're to put the blood of the lamb where? On the doorpost, on the lintel. You're to mark the house. There's two words. Uh, here we have tav. The other Hebrew word is ot. And it, it's really interesting how this all ties together. But you're to mark the doorpost and the lentil. I told you that you can easily see in the sign of the cross there. You're to mark the door with blood, the blood of the lamb. And in so doing, God says, when I pass over, if I see the blood, I will what? I will not judge that household. Do you know that the second coming of Jesus Christ is really another Passover? Think about it. He is coming again and everyone who is marked by the lamb for ownership and protection will not experience the wrath of God. Those who do not have the mark, who have not been sealed by the spirit of God or by the living God, what will they experience? The wrath of God. Now, how did this happen? Well, this is, you have to argue this is symbolic in some way because the way that the judgment occurred in Jerusalem was through Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar actually became God's instrument of judgment. I would argue that the same thing happened in 70 AD. Jesus said that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. Do you see all these buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Amen? Jesus said that. In less than 40 years when he spoke those words, Jerusalem fell to the ground by virtue of what? The Roman armies led by Titus Vespasian in AD 70. This is all, this is all world history. The vehicle by which the judgment came was the Roman army, which tells us something about the judgment of God, that sometimes the judgment of God happens through means that We'd say, well, there's a war. There's something going on. But God is behind that. And, uh, of course, I'm, I'm telling you there's going to be supernatural happenings in these last days. But here's back to Revelation 7. Uh, there's some of the parallels of the mark, the tav, the people who are marked. Now, here's the number of these individuals. And I'm going to have to probably do this chapter in two parts. We'll see. But... Look at Revelation 7, verse 4. I heard the number, Revelation 7, 4, of those who were sealed. 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, I'm sorry, it, did, it doesn't say that. Excuse me. That was mean, I'm sorry. Now you might say, why do the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that they... And, and when I say they, I have to qualify it because all those who would be part of 144,000 are now gone. So they believe the 144,000 are the only ones who can be born again, go directly to heaven, dot, dot, dot. You can go back and listen to those teachings. But where do they get this? Well, read the verse. It says it's 144,000 sealed from what? Every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, I will say this. 
to give our Jehovah's Witness friends a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, there are Christian commentators that do not take this phrase literally. They believe that the 144,000 here represents the church or the church at that age to come or over the history of redemption from the cross till whenever it all ends. I'm just going to say to you, I do not agree with that interpretation. I think what you're going to see is a clear distinction between the 144,000 and the great multitude. And there's going to be contrast between the two. And I'm going to take the language just for what it says. There are 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. I don't have any reason when I'm interpreting the Bible here to take that in any other way than in a literal sense. Now, someone will say, though, is the 144,000 literal? Because you do have 12s, right? You have 12 tribes. You have 12 sons of Jacob. And if you take 12 times 12, for those of you who are speed mathematicians back in the early grades, 12 times 12 is what? 144. I used to win those math contests. Well, I should say, there was a smart, really geeky guy. I always came in second. Anyway, never mind. I don't even know why I went there. But, you know, your times tables, right? So 12 times 12 is 144. So some people say, no, this is a symbolic number, and it's not necessarily just 144,000 Jewish people. Okay, I won't live and die with that, and I don't know if it really matters, but is there a reason to take the number symbolically? I don't know. I'll let you wrestle with the 12s and what you think and whether it's literally to a T, 144,000 or not. You can read commentators who, you know, will go back and forth on that and they'll disagree. But here's what we do know. They're from every tribe of the sons of Israel and they are being sealed. And we get a little bit more information about these individuals in Revelation 14. Flip over there for a second. Revelation 14 Here's just some additional detail we don't get in chapter 7. I looked, 14.1, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So we get some detail about the mark or what's on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder, of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song, verse 3, before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been what? Purchased from the earth. Purchased is another way of saying, saying redeemed. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women. I don't know if this means they are virgins or if the woman is a way of saying they have, been, have not been defiled with the world system. After all, marriage is from God and the marriage bed is undefiled. So I don't think that we should take this necessarily in a wooden literal, literal sense. There's a woman uh, in the chapters ahead who's a defiling agent and that may be the reference. They have kept themselves chaste these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are guileless without guile, is another way to put it. And they are blameless. 
They are distinct from the world and the world system. They're Jewish. Uh, if you go back to Revelation 7, you'll see tribes are going to be mentioned here, where they actually come from. And uh, we'll just quickly move through this, but um, these are, it's going to be clear that these are Jews and they're taken from these individual tribes. So let's just take a peek at uh, where they come from. There are from the tribe of Judah, 7, 5, 12,000 who were sealed. Judah was not the firstborn, Reuben was, but he took prominence in the 12 sons. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, he was the actual firstborn. From the tribe of Gad, there were 12,000. Remember I told you that that's where that famous praise chorus came from? He has made me Gad, he has made me Gad. Remember that? Anyway, you have to go back and get the Genesis teaching. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. By the way, Ephraim and Manasseh came into Joseph's spot. And if you remember the Genesis teaching that we went through, the boys are before Jacob, and he kind of adopts them as his own. And Ephraim and Manasseh take the place of Joseph. When you see these tribes spoken of, they're often considered half-tribes. Otherwise, you would have 13. I don't want to make your brain hurt right now. But anyway, just, just know that they were considered half-tribes. You have, uh, from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. You have the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, he became famous for making jeans, uh, 12,000. Just kidding. That's the Levit Levitical line. From the tribe of Issachar, uh, 12,000. <laughs> from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. Now notice you have Joseph and Manasseh, 12,000, and from the tribe of Benjamin. So Joseph and Benjamin were born through Rachel, Jacob's true love. They were the last ones born. 12,000 were sealed. So just simply put, what you have is Dan and uh, John leaves out Dan and lists Manasseh and not Ephraim. And puts Joseph and Levi there, which differs from a lot of the listings that you find, like, for example, in the book of Numbers. And if you are going to ask me what it means, I'm going to tell you I don't know for sure. I do know this. Dan, on the uppermost border of Israel, for those of you who are going to go to Israel with us, when we go to the uppermost, so we're going to go up past the Sea of Galilee, we're going to go to the border of Syria, that's where Dan planted their uh, roots. And because they were so close to pagan nations, they got involved in a lot of idolatry. From Dan to Beersheba is from the north. Beersheba is the farthest to the south. So Ephraim was the northern kingdom. Once uh, you had David and Solomon, you had the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom. Judah and Benjamin stayed in the south. Ten tribes stayed in the north. The north became known as Ephraim. Ephraim became corrupt. How many good kings were there in the northern kingdom? <laughs> Wasn't good. And so that may be why Dan and Ephraim are left out of these lists. Because of idolatry. But I will be quick to add, all of Israel got involved in some form of idolatry. <laughs> Amen? None of them had a perfect resume. So I don't know how far to push that. I'll just say this. There's a reason God knows, and that's why they're listed this way. And so here's where they are. All right. Now, from that section, we have Jewish people uh, sealed. 
I've heard some people try to make arguments that, okay, you know, maybe the whole book of Revelation is fulfilled in the first century because you have all these Jewish people and the first converts to Christ were what? Jewish. The early church was Jewish. So maybe all of these events are depicting the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and these first fruits are the first Jews that were saved. The book of James talks about the dispersed tribes and were kind of a first fruits to God. And so they make arguments like that. But I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Here's the second group and we'll introduce this and then we'll pick it up next time. After these things I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from... Every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they're clothed in white robes and they have palm branches in their hands. Group one is 144,000. Group two is this group that's about to appear in the throne room. They're a great uncountable multitude from every tribe, nation, and people. I think you have to see this as a last days scenario. In between the sixth and seventh seals, two major markers, 144,000 sealed for ownership and protection. Call them a remnant from Israel. Their eyes are open. They believe in the Lord. There are believing Jews even today. And then there's a great multitude. Call those Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And they're going to show up in the presence of God. And there's going to be some questions about who are they? Where did they come from? But we are out of time. So you will have to stay tuned for the same bat time, the same bat channel. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Others of you are going, amen. Anyway, sorry. But it is intriguing, isn't it, to put these things together and see how the Lord is working and to see the great care he takes to make sure that his people are safe before the end comes. That's why he came to save you, by the way. That's why he endured the cross and he despised the shame is because he wanted you to be with him. This world is a crazy place. And I know we have struggles and we talked about just a few news stories at the outset and man, we, we go through losses and difficulties and trials and there's diseases and um, I was on the phone with a sweet sister just before I came out here and she's going through a trial and and it's just good to know we're in good hands right we know that the Lord writes the last chapter <laughs> and so as we study these things let's be of good cheer because Jesus overcame the world for us father we are grateful for this incredible book it can be very complex but yet in many ways very simple and as we take scripture with scripture, we can see your great plan unfolding before our eyes. We can see the seals being broken, but before the wrath of God comes, you seal people from the, the, promised, uh, the promised people, really, the, the, your chosen people. And then we see this great multitude grafted in the Gentiles, Jew and Gentile, one church in Christ. And we see you take great care to make sure that they're safe in your, in your wonderful arms before judgment falls. And, you know, Second Peter tells us that you're not slow about what you do, about your coming, but you don't want any to perish. You want all to come to repentance. And 
we're grateful to be here tonight and part of the redeemed community. But we also know that there's business to do until you come. You told us to occupy until you come. You said while you're away, we're to be about your business. So help us, Lord, through the ups and downs of this life, through the, the trials and, and the good times to make sure we're busy about your business until you come for us or we go to be with you. With your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Jesus or maybe you've just felt like you've been far away, maybe you've not experienced being sealed in his blood, maybe you've never applied the work of Christ to your life by believing in his death on the cross and his resurrection for you, Maybe you've never made it official that you want to follow him. You want to follow the true king in his kingdom. Tonight is an opportunity. And life gives you some opportunities, but tomorrow's not even promised to us. I would just say to you, if you are not sure, if you're a prodigal, if you've just been struggling and you want to come back home, just, you know, there's an open invitation to come. Come just as you are. Come with your struggles, your fears, and your doubts. And come into the cleansing presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will wash you, forgive you. He will cause you to be born again to a living hope. And he'll give you a new heart and a new start. You've got to cry out to him. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you will be saved. You've got to make an individual decision. So it's something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe. Pray it if it's you. I believe you came to this world, you made the world, and you came to the world to save me. I believe you endured the cross for me. I believe you bore my sin there, took my punishment, took the wrath I deserved. I believe that you conquered the grave, and I believe you're coming again. And I put my full trust in you as Lord and Savior and King. I turn from my sin, Lord, I repent of it, and I place my full trust in you. Help me follow you all the days of my life. Father, thank you for this precious congregation. May you bless and encourage and strengthen their walks with you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.